Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists. Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims. Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there. Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project. Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible so you don't have to. I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptics Bible Project. Happy to be here with you again. How are you, Ben? I'm doing well, John. How are you doing? I'm doing good. So this, Ben, will be our absolute Josh McDowell finale. I know we've said this before. The last episode was supposed to be the final one. But again, we wanted to give... Uh, all the time uh, and attention to the people that wrote in questions and reached out to us on social media. So we got through, I would think, about half of the questions. So we wanted today to cap it off and um, finish out those questions. What do you think? Awesome. All right. Let's start with the first one. Take it away, Ben. All right. Is it true that Paul never saw any resurrection directly himself? Well, the Bible doesn't claim that anybody saw the resurrection. Nobody. I mean, the women saw the empty tomb and then they saw the risen Christ. No one actually witnessed uh, Jesus' dead body reanimating. So I don't know if that's what he's asking. But Paul does consider the vision that he had, however you want to describe it, you can go and read um, his description of it and the description in Acts even. And um, Paul does consider that to be a legitimate resurrection appearance. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that's what Paul thought. I think that if we could have interviewed the original uh, disciples, like the uh, Jerusalem church, my guess is they would say, no way did Paul see the resurrected Jesus. I mean, this this gets into a little bit more of like my my theory, Ben, but I think that the idea that um, there was a real rift between Paul and the Jerusalem church. And Paul is trying to say, hey, I'm an apostle just like you guys, because he appeared to you, the 12, and he appeared to me um, in the same manner. So I think that's what Paul's doing here. He's trying to bolster his apostolic claim. And so, yes, I think he would consider it a a legitimate resurrection appearance. And uh, certainly the church now um, looks at it that way. Yeah, it definitely seems like what Paul is describing is different than the resurrection appearances that we get in the Gospels later on. Um, For example, uh, where there's an emphasis on Jesus's resurrected body being also physical, not not just a spiritual body. Although even that gets confusing because he's walking through walls too. Um, But yeah, I suspect that... um, 
Paul viewed his resurrection experience as equally valid as the other appearances. He seems to say that they're all the same um, when he's repeating the creed. Um, But I I also actually think that John is probably right. I think there may have been controversy um, about the distinctions that the Jerusalem church, um, the way that the uh, original original followers of Jesus claim to have resurrection experiences may be different than what Paul meant. Um, but it's complicated to know. I don't think that it's uh, totally clear. Um, and um, I do also think that Paul needs this. He draws his authority to kind of reinscribe Christian um, or this new Christianity, this new covenant um, for the Gentiles um, he needs some sort of authority to say they don't have to be circumcised. Um, you know, they're the engrafted branch um, onto the tree. They're they're part of the new covenant through Jesus Christ, and he gets that by his experience that he has talking to the resurrected Christ. So, was Paul convinced by this experience? Um, that's a very interesting question, Ben. Me and you. <laughs> Uh, off air have like gone, you know, had a lot of discussion about this because like the motives of Paul, I think are kind of a big unknown. I mean, I think the more traditional answer is like, absolutely. This, this, uh, vision that Paul experienced changed his entire life. It's, it's definitely the, uh, uh, traditional view of Christians, but it's also, I think the traditional view of many scholars that think like he had some kind of legitimate experience that changed um, his life. However, I have thought of this as like, listen, Paul has a lot to gain from this uh, vision. And um, he also has a lot to lose if he doesn't. I think it's pretty clear reading between the lines that people were accusing Paul of not being a true apostle, of not being connected to the historical Jesus in any way. Why are we listening to this guy? This story is a very convenient story that um, connects Paul to Jesus um, in a very direct way. And it basically has Jesus um, coming down and grant and uh, bestowing ap- apostolic authority onto Paul directly himself. And so I don't I'm not saying that uh, Paul was lying. I'm just saying that I think that should be a um, in the cards when you're trying to determine, uh, you know, why Paul is telling this story the way he's telling it. One of the options is Paul made it up. I don't think, I'm not saying that that's what ha- is what happened, but I do think it should be on the table. So was Paul convinced by this experience? I'm not so sure. Um, I, I don't think we know, and I don't think we will ever know unless like new evidence comes to light. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting. So I, it, people should always keep in mind when you're reading these accounts that you should read Paul's version of the account of his conversion and try to read it without the pollution of the Acts account. And then if you want to read the Acts account later, that's fine. But like, understand that that's not the same. It's a historical whitewash in some ways of Paul's actual account, um, or it's trying to solve maybe some of the problems of Paul's um, initial account. Um, 
I think that, um, yeah, I think, again, Paul's whole notion of his authority is completely contingent on this relationship that he has, this sort of, I don't know, like an esoteric uh, relationship that he has with the resurrected Christ. Um, he is in open conflict with the disciples who knew Jesus in his lifetime, um, like Peter, like James. Um, he writes super uncharitable things to letters uh, to his opponents. He's constantly on the defensive. He's dependent on um, all of these communities that he's set up for his financial well-being. Um, so I think that John raises a lot of really interesting points about um, Paul's motivation or possible motivation. I mean, I think that part of the problem is that we just don't, it's really hard to read people's intentions. Um, and so it's hard to know. And since Paul is our earliest source, it's there's not a lot to read him against. Um, but I think there's also a lot of evidence in the text that Paul is improvising with the materials that he has at hand. So sometimes playing with sort of Neoplatonic um, or Middle Platonic philosophy, sometimes um, thinking, like pondering the natural world, um, sometimes maybe even like uh, making allusions to Stoicism or um, like a Greek education. Uh, Paul is sort of just like pulling from whatever he has around him to form his theology, but I, that theology is sort of being formed in out of like he is kind of creating it. So whether you want to say he's lying or he's just sort of trying to make up this Christianity as he goes on the fly, um, it's hard to make a distinction without knowing like his actual intentionality. Um, but I do think John is right that like we shouldn't assume um, totally pure motives for Paul just like we wouldn't assume totally pure motives for some sort of like a charismatic pastor that's going around asking for money and doing healings now or claiming that he's speaking to God now. Um, I think like it's not a perfect analogy, but I think that it's a, in some ways it's a helpful analogy to, analogy to almost think about it that way. And Paul himself in his letters actually hints at um, times where he's not com being completely honest. And uh, we can get into that. I, ben, we definitely need to do an episode about this because I know we've talked about it quite a bit. Uh, and I, I just think it's, it's fascinating. But uh, why don't we move on uh, down the same line of more questions about Paul. So was Paul put to death for his uh, conversion to Christianity? Um, I think it's very likely we have uh, First Clement in, um, I think, like, 95 AD, something like that, that seems to suggest this, that he suffered for his faith um, and then was set free, meaning like it sounds like he was possibly killed. Um, I think it's possible that he was martyred as a Christian, but again, none of this gets to, um, you know, like, like Josh McDowell's framing, which seems to be like, um, well, they knew, he knew the resurrection was true. Therefore, 
he would have just recanted uh, had he no had he thought it wasn't true. Well, again, we have no we 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 just have very scant little hints about the death of Paul. We have no idea any of the circumstance for it. And to be honest, it's very possible that Paul just died a natural death. Um, I actually don't think that. Like I said, I think he probably was martyred in Rome, but. Uh, we just we just have such little evidence to uh, make any definitive statements. Yeah, I would just echo that to be cautious about um, where the evidence is coming from, and not being overly reliant on tradition. Um, if it's something that doesn't originate till hundreds of years later, um, well, we know Christianity was prolific. Uh, early Christianity was prolific in creating legends about their um, early figures. So um, those legends are not considered historical. So we shouldn't consider the legends about Paul historical too. That being said, I think most uh, his historians do believe that Paul was killed um, in Rome probably in the late 60s. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think it needs to be reiterated also that, again, being a martyr for a religion does not make that religion true, or else uh, Joseph Smith was basically a martyr. Uh, David Koresh could be considered a martyr. If you're a Branch Davidian, they, maybe they do think he's a martyr. Uh, or, you know, like there's many, many examples throughout all of history, and uh, none of that are reasons that we should go out and, and uh, start believing those religions. Um, What's next? Is it possible that Peter, James, or the others um, had similar experiences of the resurrected Christ as Paul did? I think that is very possible because uh, we like what we have from the Gospels is so much later than um, what the historical Peter and James, um, what they would have said and done. So it's very possible that the the first uh, belief in the resurrection um, stemmed from a sort of a group of people that claimed to have visions in the way that Paul had a vision, and that the idea of a bodily resurrection only came about later as a way to debunk um, what became heresies like docetism that said Jesus didn't have a physical body. I think that's actually possible. There's real again, like I, I know we say this a lot, but there's no way to really no definitive answers on this. So you're just kind of like um, coming up with the most plausible theories that you can. Yeah, I think it's like obviously going to be conjecture, but I uh, also think that John's um, right in his, his notion too. I mean, I think that people either said, oh, I, you know, somebody claimed I saw him on the road or somebody saw someone and later thought, wait, that was, I, I was talking to Jesus or um, somebody had a dream um, or somebody thought they saw a ghost and then it started to spread. Maybe a few other people saw it and that's how it began. Um, but obviously if Paul is claiming to had visions, I think that's another um way that other believers um, could have... I mean, again, we don't really know who were the witnesses, uh, quote-unquote, to the resurrected Jesus either. Like, uh, Paul, Peter and James make the, the creedal list, but, I mean, that list predates Paul, so it's early, but we don't know the historical validity of that list. Um, 
we don't have names for the other people. We don't have their actual testimony. All we have is something that Paul is repeating. So it's not even like something that Paul is attesting to firsthand. He's basically quoting somebody else. Yeah, and um, like we said on that in that creed, you can totally take that as a um, a spiritual vision of Jesus in the same exact way that Paul saw him. So yes, I I would say just from if you're just taking First Corinthians fifteen, you absolutely could come to the impression that um, the vision that the the disciples had was very similar to the one that Paul had. And you don't even have in in Mark a, an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. You just have the empty tomb. So, but there's even no up empty to Mark. But there's no empty tomb in in Paul in First yeah, Corinthians. Yeah, but I I think that like even up to Mark, you still don't have the um, resurrect resurrection appearances um, start to have the concern over like does Jesus have a physical body or a spiritual body? Yeah. Um, those are basically raised like once you start getting into like Matthew and Luke's time period. Um, so I think it's possible that there was a variety of experiences that people were affirming, um, even up till maybe when Mark was being written. Um, yeah, and I think that that's they hadn't nailed that down. Yeah, and I think that gets to um, like a question we had earlier about uh, you know Mark and priority. I think that's a perfect example of how you see. Well, clearly this question of did Jesus' resurrected body have a physical form or was it just like a ghostly spiritual form? This was clearly. Uh, divergent viewpoints in the early church, and there was debate about this, and the Gospels are trying to answer that question. And so Mark doesn't really give a definitive answer, uh, because Mark has no appearances of Jesus at all. It just has the empty tomb. So that go that can go right along with what Paul says, that, well, the disciples started having visions of Jesus and seeing him here and there. But then you get to Matthew and Luke and John, and Jesus is very much presently there in a physical body. Um, so again, I think that fits in with what we've been saying about the evolution of the Gospels and how, the, you know, these questions that were coming up in the early church, that's the reason that the Gospels were written, um, that these like changes were made to the tradition or additions or exaggerations, whatever you want to call them. Uh, it's, to, it's really to answer heresies and to answer like false beliefs, uh, what they consider to be false beliefs. Yeah, I totally agree. Does the early church teach that a historical resurrection had happened? I think that's a very broad question because it assumes that there was like an like a one solitary church that had one solitary belief. And I think a better way to look at it is um, in the same way the church is fractured now, it was probably even more fractured then. And um, there was all kinds of divergent viewpoints all over the place. Like I said, you had the docetists that believed Jesus didn't have a physical body. Um so it's really hard to say like what everyone believed at that time. There is not there's not like one singular answer to that question. Yeah, and I think that the gospels create this sort of idea that again, they they go to the tomb on the third day and boom, the everything jump starts. Um Christianity just goes off, people start telling the story. Um but obviously we're we're trying to think about how this would develop historically and historically all these things would have taken a little bit of time to um and they wouldn't have been uniform stories that were going out or one person telling like the origin story 
that um, there was there was a bunch of different people telling a bunch of different stories before the Gospels are even written. I think as like a follow-up to that question, this person also said, um, is there a less supernatural alternative that would be more plausible than a historical resurrection? Um, well, by definition, the answer to that is yes, in my opinion, because, you know, historically speaking, any explanation that is any naturalistic explanation is more probable than a supernatural explanation so um like in the gospel of matthew the jews were claiming that uh, the disciples came and stole the body and we made the case on the show that you know if you're going to take the testimony from the gospels like you need to take the the all the testimony including those people that claimed hey the resurrection didn't happen they uh, came and stole the body so and yeah, like, you know, like people are going to want to crucify me for saying this. I'm not saying they stole the body. I, I don't think that actually happened. But what I am saying is like from strictly from a scientific historically historical standpoint, it's far more plausible that a group of uh, devoted followers came and took the body than it is that the body resurrected and came back to life. Uh, and, and you can come up with um, a million different explanations. I mean, uh, John Dominic Crossan says that he thinks the body of Jesus was just thrown into a ditch and eaten by dogs the way that uh, it was common for criminals crucified on a cross. And then the, re and then the resurrection stories evolved after the fact. Um, is, is that what I think happened? No, but it's it's more plausible than a supernatural event happened. I'm not, again, I'm not saying here that a supernatural event didn't happen, but he's asking this in the context of, hist of a historian. And you'd have to say, from a historical standpoint, any non-supernatural explanation is going to be far more plausible than a supernatural one. Yeah, you just always have to go through all the other possible... Um all the other possibilities before you get to the one that's got the like least prior probability. So, you know, if I wake up in the middle of a field, it's like maybe I got there by aliens or maybe I sleepwalked. It seems much more likely that I sleepwalked because that doesn't require the existence of aliens, me going on a spaceship, me being in some sort of, you know, there's no, it's, the Occam's razor, most simplistic. Uh, yeah, and even if and and going along with your analogy, Ben, even if you claimed that you were abducted by aliens and taken up onto the mothership, um, what's more likely from this from a standpoint of a scientist or historian that you're lying or that you actually were taken up onto a spaceship? And, um, and so that's kind of what I I'm trying to get at is that. Um, like we don't want to say things like the beloved Paul could have been lying or the apostles or, or, or writers of the Bible could have been lying. But again, speaking strictly from a historical uh, perspective, what is more plausible that all of these supernatural things occurred or that someone made it up in the way that we see people making up all kinds of supernatural tales to this day? Yes. Um, was the risen Jesus witnessed by any authors of the biblical text? Um, well, they're claimed to. So Peter in Second uh, Peter, he may also in First Peter, um, claims to have seen the risen Jesus. Um, and then you have Paul, which we just talked about, 
talking about the vision that he had. So if you count that, uh, but again, the, I think this questioner means in flesh and blood. So if you mean in flesh yeah. and blood, then Paul did not, you really couldn't count Paul as someone that claimed to see the flesh and blood Jesus. And then, so what are you left with? You're left with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which um, are not eyewitnesses, nor do they claim to be eyewitnesses. So you, the answer to that is no. And then you have uh, the Gospel of John, which claims to be the testimony of the beloved disciple. But what we know about the Gospel of John is it's a heavily edited and redacted book that was the latest gospel to be written, um, most likely after the lifetime of the actual followers of Jesus. So you can kind of scratch that one off the list of being like the direct testimony of someone that saw the flesh and blood Jesus. And like I said, you're left with, uh, I think you're only left at that point with First uh, and Second Peter, which... Uh, scholars in almost unison would say the Apostle Peter did not write those books. So I think you really have a problem. I think the answer to that is no. Yeah, it's funny. Like people always want to count all the eyewitnesses and they say like the 500 and James and Peter and Paul and the women. And it's just a like a mishmash of all the different accounts from different places. And yeah, we don't have Peter's testimony. Uh, those the Peter and uh, epistles are forgeries. We uh, only have Paul's testimony about all those people. Uh, so secondhand, a, a creed that he repeats. And so all you really have is Paul's resurrection experience, which we've talked about um, ad nauseum. But is it seems like some sort of a spiritual ep epiphany or vision much more than an appearance in uh, the flesh and blood. Um, yeah, I think that um, that question about um, the nature of Paul's vision, um, the more, Ben, we've talked about it a lot, and I think the more we get into it, the more fascinating that question really becomes because um, like even the nature of what, it, what did Paul mean by a spiritual body, it's not as simple as I once thought it was. I once thought, oh, a spiritual body must mean just kind of like a ghost or whatever. But no, it's actually much more complicated than that. And there's a lot of uh, resources available to dig into that. And it really is fascinating. Um, All right. Are these questions a matter of personal faith? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So everything we're talking about is like um, the historical evidence and what's more likely, what's more plausible historically. Um None of what Ben, I want to make this very clear, like Ben and I, although we get attacked by um, Christians and um, fundamentalists who don't like what we're saying, we're not actually saying that you shouldn't have faith or that you shouldn't believe that these things are true. We're saying that we're taking on the evidentialists, the people that are like Josh McDowell, who are saying the evidence makes it more probable that these things happen than they didn't. Take your faith completely out of it and saying a historian should come to the conclusion that the resurrection happened and that Christianity is true. That is, I think, what me and Ben are arguing with. If you understand that and you say, yes, um, there's lots of religions out there, many different uh, teachings all over the place, but I, as a matter of faith and putting my faith in Christianity, um, I don't think that Ben and I or anyone else can really have a problem with that. I mean, that's your own personal belief. Um, and, uh, you know, we have, we have our own ways of, of thinking about it and parsing it out. 
but yeah, I think these the these questions are a matter of personal faith, and I think that's a much better way to frame it for Christians, um, just to say not to try to come to you and, and persuade you with evidence that um, these things are true, because the evidence, as we've gone through, most cases doesn't really support the apologist's claim. But if you if you come to it and you say this has helped my, me in my life. Um, with these various reasons, um, I personally think it's true, and I hold it uh, by faith. And I, I don't think that's a really unchristian way to be. Um, and I don't, I don't really understand why so many Christians are opposed to that, uh, or they're so they're so opposed to looking at the evidence in a skeptical way. Because I believe you can be skeptical about the evidence and still be a Christian. Yeah, I mean, I pretty much just like echo what you're saying. I mean, I think that it's actually a really rewarding way to look at the Bible um, that can give you some extra um, substance and depth, like uh, beyond just sort of the traditional um, religious reading of the text. So I don't think that it, that um, looking at the historical events like has to be counter to faith at all. Um, and I think that some of these questions you can have a theological answer, but also understand the historical answer or the history behind it. It doesn't, so those two things don't have to necessarily agree perfectly. Um, and you can hold them in tension, but understand that they're two kind of separate discourses. Um, and, and like John said, I think sometimes that's much more of a healthy way to, kind of approach these things to be a little bit more um, humble and less dogmatic. And I also think that there's a way to do theology that starts with this kind of better historical base um, for your teachings that um, alleviates some of the problems that I see that continue to plague the church because exactly they have a, a text that they're um, reading, but they're, they refuse to recognize contradicts itself in certain places, or uh, you have two different biblical authors that are saying different things. Um, this seems to continually uh, be something that causes division and uh, a lack of uh, community amongst people that say they're Christians. So I think that there's a lot of ways that um, looking at the evidence is can be, looking at the evidence in a really skeptical way um, can also be beneficial for your faith. Um, and I definitely don't think that it has to threaten your faith, um, like by definition. Um, let's see. Are resurrection accounts fundamentally not historical events? I would say resurrection accounts are historical events. In other words, it's historically true, I would say, that Christians... Uh, were claiming that the resurrection happened. But if you're asking, are resurrections um, historical events? I would say uh, the evidence goes against that. In other words, the idea that a historian with confidence can say that a resurrection took place, um, I think, I don't know any historians that would do that. And um, for good reason. Uh, because like like me and Ben said in a previous answer, it's always the naturalistic explanation is always more plausible. And um, 
And what we have is not evidence of resurrections. We have evidence of claims of resurrection. And we have that, and we have evidence of claims of all kinds of supernatural events all over the world. So that's about as far as I would go with that. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have extremely compelling evidence to overcome the, prob- the prior improbability of any type of a miraculous account. But then you still have a problem, in my opinion, because you have the weight of how do you decipher all the different accounts of historical... Uh, like, if you want to say, oh, the naturalists are wrong, the naturalistic worldview is incorrect, and there can be miracles. Well, what conceptual framework do you use to gauge different miraculous claims? And I don't think anybody has ever given me a conceptual framework that works to evaluate those claims. Like, if you are going by, oh, it has to be eyewitness testimony. Okay, and my eyewitness is Paul. Well, what about the people that were the eyewitnesses to Joseph Smith? What about the people that were the eyewitnesses to David Koresh? What were the people that were the eyewitnesses to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? It's the conceptual framework has to be able to take all of the evidence um, from different religious claims seriously and and weigh it in a way that doesn't privilege your particular claim over another. And, and that's why the naturalistic view is better. It just says these claims have to be supported by extremely compelling evidence, and really there's not enough evidence that could ever overcome the prior improbability. Yeah, and I think that you know this gets to the difference between having a faith commitment and a historical commitment. I, th- I really think it's two different endeavors. Um, and I think that having a faith-based commitment is fine. Um, but the problem I have is when they try to venture into the world of, of historical evidence and claim that it, it rises to the standard of uh, anything that we believe in from ancient history, that these supernatural claims rise to, I just think it falls flat. I, I'm, not, I'm not persuaded by it. And I find it a little bit um, disingenuous how they make all kinds of special pleading for Christianity that they wouldn't make for any other religion. And and as you know, Ben, I mean, there's you know Islamic scholars who make very similar types of claims for uh, what we find in the Quran, and um, and you know you find different religions all over the place that will make the same type of claims that these things are historical and it can be proven historically. And um, I, ju- I think it's fundamentally the wrong way that a... And who am I to tell a religious person how to like do their faith? But I, I do fundamentally think it's a, an improper way for them to do it because if they want to have faith in it and tell other people about how it's helped them, that's fine. But I think that it gets into the realm of uh, miseducating people uh, in the same way that, you know, when I was growing up, they taught me about young earth creationism, that that was true and that evolution was a lie. And I resent that to this day because I think that um, they're doing the same thing. They're taking a hyper literal interpretation of, of an ancient book um, that maybe in, in all probability likely the original authors didn't even intend it to be read in that fashion. And they're imposing it on children and actually like diverting them from learning about the real science. Uh, and and evolution, and um, anyway, that's my little rant. But I just think that um, 
it's it's problematic to venture into uh, the realm of science and history with these ancient texts. Yeah, I think that'll lead us into our final question. Should we even ask about evidence in the gospel accounts? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on why you're looking at the evidence. If you're doing what we're trying to do here and get a historical grasp on what the texts are really saying, what the author is really trying to say, how the texts develop in history, um, what does the Bible in its original form or as close as we can get to the original form say, um, how did these doctrines develop in the early church, um, then I think that studying the history and the evidence of the text can be like extremely rewarding and valuable. Um, I think the apologetic project of misusing evidence um, in a kind of cynical way to either... I mean, John, you described this the other day in our, our conversation as a way to kind of... Uh, affirm people who already believe a certain way in the historical uh, validity of their beliefs, um, even if it's in a way that's very dishonest. Um, or I think you said that, and I agree, that this is less the case now, but um, to go out and really confront people with evidence um, so have debates with real scholars. I just think that most of what passes on the apologetic side is not good scholarship. It's just cherry-picking data to um, prove a conclusion that they started out with. And so I think that um, it, it creates a really bad, bad notions of history that miseducate people in the church. I don't know if you agree, John. Yeah, I think that... Um you know, it really comes down to when you talk about evaluating evidence, should, should the question is, should we even ask about evidence? Yes, it's always good to ask about evidence. It's always good to ask questions. And I think that um, the problem I think we have is that the Josh McDowells of the world are not actually analyzing the evidence properly. You know, humanity has come up with this wonderful tool called the scientific method, which is really uh, an outstanding tool to evaluate evidence. And Josh McDowell is not doing that. He's, like you said, Ben, what, he, what he's doing here, he's not making arguments that are going to persuade a historian, a scientist, or an academic. Um, he's making arguments that will just bolster the faith of people who already believe. Um, to add like a, uh, a tool in the, in the tool belt of Christians that try to answer skeptics like us. But as we've shown, I think, on this entire series, um, the evidence, he's not being honest with the way he's looking at the evidence. He's ignoring all the good scholarship out there. And he's cherry-picking out the little factoids that he thinks support his um, fundamentalist claim. But that's a by definition, a dishonest way to look at the evidence. So I would just say, yes, I would encourage, I would always encourage everybody to look at the evidence and to examine it, but do it fairly and do it in depth. Don't just read um, people that already agree with you or people or read things that you want to believe to be true. Also take into account the people that disagree and the people that have a different point of view and, and look at who's being more honest with the evidence, who's being more in depth with the evidence. Totally agree. Okay, John, I just wanted to read one more comment um, from Reddit before we finish up. 
So this person says, I read that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, as a young man, and it's what convinced me to become a pastor. The idea of having strong evidence for the claims of the Bible was a new idea to me. The idea that I could know and argue about the Bible from the perspective of evidence and logic was eye-opening to me. I went to a very conservative Bible college and was dismayed by their apparent lackadaisical approach to apologetics and unwillingness to apply evidentiary standards to biblical interpretation. Many of my professors openly talked about the dangers of apologetics and relying on evidence and logic to interpret the Bible. They warned that doing so could lead Christians astray. When I would argue with them about it, they would tend to make some patronizing comment about how one day, when I was more mature, I would have to choose between faith and reason, although they seldom worded it that way. I now realize that in a way, they were right. As you study the Bible more with what my circles called an evidentiary approach, the more the Bible's flaws become apparent. They were right to warn me away from it, from their perspective, because it was what eventually made me realize that the Bible is not inspired, that it is flawed, wrong, and no different than any other religious myth. One of the books that was required reading for all students said something to the effect that apologetics is edifying for the behavior, but it is practically useless and suggested against apologetics as a witnessing tool. I almost feel bad for Christians. If they are intellectually honest, once they study their Bible, they become forced to accept the Bible as flawed, turn their back on reason and logic, or create some nonsensical compartmentalization. Most are unwilling to accept the Bible is flawed, so they must adopt a completely unreasoned, anti-intellectual, anti-science worldview, one that I believe has infected almost all of evangelicalism. I thought that comment was um, extremely uh, insightful, and I pretty much agree with it completely. All right, so I think we've reached the end of uh, this Josh McDowell extravaganza. Um, I can't really say I'm sad to see it go, but uh, (laughs) uh, we've certainly uh, beaten it to death, I think. Uh, I hope all of you out there have enjoyed it, and... um, we want to do this more, uh, responding to the claims made by apologists. We have a few other ideas um, that I think you guys will like coming up. But um, I've had a blast doing it, Ben. I don't know about you. Yeah, I really like this. Uh, I, I like being able to respond to specific claims. And this was a book that was obviously sort of like formative in the ether of growing up in the evangelical church. So it was nice to be able to confront some of the uh, evidence that demands a verdict. Yeah, and uh, for everyone out there that misses our regular segments like uh, Bible versus Bible and Bible says what, uh, we are going to get back into that. The, there was so much Josh McDowell material that um, we kind of put that to the sidelines, but um, I want to assure everyone that that is... Those segments will be returning. I know we've had some questions coming in about that. I don't really have anything more, Ben. Great. Yeah, John, thank you so much. Have a wonderful night, everybody. Good night. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticsbibleproject and follow us on all social media platforms 
at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at skepticsbibleproject at gmail.com. Thank you.